You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Titus chapter 2, 11 through chapter 3, verse 8. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Grass withers, the flower fades, And the word of our God stands forever. Our passage this morning comes from one of Paul's pastoral epistles. There are three pastoral epistles. Uh, These are just smaller letters. Normally, Paul would write to the church at Corinth or the church at Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, which is the series that we're kind of in the the middle of, uh, the, the book of Colossians. He's writing to a church, but there are these three letters that are to specific individuals who are in pastoral ministry. They are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. These are written to men in the field of their pastoral ministry. Instead of writing to the church generically, they're addressed to certain individuals in the pastoral role. However, that does not mean that they have no application then to regular Christians because he's giving instruction for the leader of this community 
on what to teach those that he is in charge of. So there's some context there surrounding this, this letter of Titus. And the reason why we would look at this text today is because Paul could hardly be accused of someone who doesn't care about the truth of the gospel message as propositional truth. Saying, by saying that meaning that it is, a, it is good news. It is a declaration of a message of what Christ has done. So Paul can never be accused of not believing and not emphasizing that this is a message of truth to be heard, to be responded to by faith, to be believed in. That this is very much a, an announcement of good news to be embraced with, with heart, soul, and mind. Paul declares a gospel. He's radically committed to preaching the truth of who Christ is and what we've done. We've covered this. We're in the middle of our, or towards the end of the middle of our series and what we believe, the truths of the faith, going through our doctrinal statement, 10 points in our doctrinal statement. We're on point eight this morning. And we covered this in points four and five, the who person of Christ and the work of Christ. And I mean, just briefly, this is what God has done for us in Christ. Paul was committed to this message that we are all sinners deserving of God's just wrath because of our sin against him. We are deserving of his eternal justice in hell, condemnation. And what God has done in Christ is he has sent his son who put on flesh, lived the righteous life. He was without sin. He had no sin. And yet he died the death of a, of a criminal on the cross. He absorbs the wrath of God in the place of sinners so that every one of you listening this morning, wherever you are, though not on the life feed, doesn't look like, but wherever you are, <laughs> may hear this message and believe and be forgiven of your sin. And that is all just a message that is heard, that is responded to. Repentance comes. You hate your sin. You hate what you've done. You turn from your sin. You turn to Christ. You look at the cross. You look to Jesus. You trust in his life, burial, resurrection from the dead. And you are forgiven. You are adopted into the family of God. Paul cannot be accused of not caring about that message. If you read his words... He, at the beginning of, of chapter 2, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine, propositional truth. Believe truth. Believe propositional truth. Who God is, who we are, who Christ is, what he has done, who the Holy Spirit is as he's moving through us. It's why I stress so much and try to stress about being a Christ-centered church a gospel-centered church. I want every Sunday that you come into this building to be reminded of the beauty of the good news of the gospel. We are sinners in desperate need of saving. And thanks be to God, there is salvation found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But does that faith in Christ then terminate just in our justification? The point of our doctrine this morning is Christian living. Does our faith then just terminate upon our justification? Are we then saved? Thank you very much, Jesus. Now I can go and live my life. 
Thank you, I'm saved, that's great, I'm glad you did that. Now I can go on and I'm glad I've got that box marked off, a checklist. My bucket list, one of them was to be forgiven of my sins so that I can go to heaven. And now that I've checked off that bucket list, I can go work on finishing the rest of my bucket list. Is that what happens with our faith? Do we just believe to be saved and then move on happily with our lives in our own direction? Is Paul just radically concerned that his people have this comprehension of propositional truth statements about Jesus, about Christ and his work? No. This morning you can see at this text, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Yes and amen. There it is, the good news. The grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation for all people. Now, parenthetically, that all people does not mean universalism. That is a, that is a way of saying that there is no type of person. It's, it's the salvation for all people. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, um, no matter what geographical or ethnicity or whatever you, I don't know if you're Asian, Indonesian, American, Southwest Iowan, if you're just somebody from the boondocks, Christ's salvation is good for all. It's for all people. But this propositional truth that this salvation is for all, verse 12, he goes on to say, what does this grace do? Trains us. Trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the point in this eighth paragraph of our doctrinal statement. I'll have it in tiny, tiny print up on your screen. There's more that you can get a, a, a folder with this printed on it and in all of the doctrinal statements out on our table. But here's what the eighth paragraph in our doctrinal, doctrinal statement says. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, justice for the oppressed, with God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil in obedience to Christ's commission. We are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. End of the paragraph. And this paragraph uses a phrase in this first sentence that I think makes sense of the whole rest of the paragraph. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God's justifying work cannot be divorced from God's sanctifying work. That's a way of saying that the, the grace of God that saved you is a grace that continues on in sanctifying you. It isn't the grace of God saves you, and then that's the end of the deal. God's justifying grace, what's to be justified is to be made righteous in God's sight. It's a legal declaration. You are told you are, it, is, it is pronounced upon you. You are not uh, under wrath anymore, justified. The grace that justifies you 
cannot be divorced from the grace that sanctifies you, that conforms you to the image of Christ. To be sanctified is to be grown in godliness, to be growing in holiness. It is to be made holy, sanctified. Justifying grace cannot be separated from sanctifying grace. All who are justified by the grace of God, God continues to work to bring about their sanctification. God continues to grow them in Christ-likeness. Now, undoubtedly, this goes at different speeds, different bursts of speed, different phases in everyone's different life. I mean, you see some will have great moments of sanctification and others kind of slowly grow in their godliness or have a big spurt and, you know, it's just, it's all over the, the, the map. But undoubtedly, God does this. You cannot separate his justifying grace from his sanctifying grace. Look down in verse 14. What God has done this, this, this Titus passage has just got so much gospel in it. It's why I love it for this idea. Because the, the, the truth of the gospel shines forth so clearly. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did what? Gave himself to redeem us from all, from all lawlessness. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back. We've been brought into the kingdom of God. We've been saved. He's redeemed us, redeemed from us from lawlessness and purified for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. These good works that have not saved them, but they now have been saved to do good works. Romans 8, 9 says that we were saved because we were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. The Christian experience cannot be broken down into those who have received justification. There are those who are saved. And then there are those who are saved and then go on and get sanctified. It's not two different types of Christians. You know, there are those who've walked the aisle and checked the mark or whatever. Can't, they went through confirmation and they, 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 got, they signed on their church membership. They got justified, but then there's no real sanctification going on in their life. They're not growing in godliness. There's no Christian like that. You can't, that is separating God's justifying grace from his sanctifying grace. You cannot separate these two. You cannot divorce them even though we may try. Another way to think about this is the statement, some of you, this won't help at all, so I apologize, but there are some of you who like when I do, I think you do, I guess no one's really ever told me this, I like when I do <laughs> uh, fancy word things. But so you think of it this way, that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. I know, hear me out. That helps me, it may not help any of you, so if it doesn't help you, forget it. But if it helps you, remember it. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. All the orthodoxy is right believing. If you're an orthodox Christian, I don't mean in the Eastern Orthodox way, but I mean believing the right truths, believing the gospel, believing who God, believing what God has shown Himself to be in Scripture. Orthodoxy. If you are, if you have right belief, it leads to right practice. Orthopraxy, right living. Orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, right believing, leads to orthopraxy, right living, right practices. Right believing leads to right living. 
All that it means is that right belief leads to right actions. If you believe the truth of the gospel, it cannot help but lead to that truth impacting the way that you live your life. When Jesus becomes Lord of your life, he is Lord over all of it. He doesn't save just this part of you that's going to go to heaven and the rest of it is yours. Jesus takes a dead sinner and makes them fully alive, fully his. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Now, it doesn't work in reverse. That is, you can't say orthopraxy leads to right orthodoxy. You can't say that, well, if I live right, that leads to right believing. You cannot diagnose someone's heart by their actions. We see this. There are all kinds of people in our community who do all kinds of nice things for their neighbors, who we are surrounded by giving people, by caring people. Um, if you run out of gas, if you're driving your lawnmower somewhere, this may have happened to me, it may have not. If you're driving your lawnmower somewhere and it runs out of gas on the way to the gas station, you didn't bring a, a tank of gas with you, all kinds of people will stop by and just give you gas to get to the, to get to the gas station. I mean, we, that's surrounded by, that's, that's helping your neighbor. That's love for neighbor. But orthopraxy doesn't always guarantee orthodoxy. Right behavior doesn't mean, just because they gave me a can of gas doesn't mean that they love Jesus. Orthopraxy doesn't necessarily guarantee orthodoxy. I only say that because we're easily confused that in our culture today. That if they do good things, they must be good people. Well, it's, it's very easy. We talked about our human condition, about the depravity of man. We are not as bad as we could be. But you cannot redu reduce that to orthopraxy means orthodoxy. But that also doesn't mean that right behavior doesn't matter at all. I mean, so you can't say, well, orthopraxy means if you right living means you're right believing. No, but you still can't say that right living doesn't matter. It absolutely does because right believing will lead to right living. Orthodoxy will lead to orthopraxy. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 17 and 18, he says, a good tree, what, is it, what kind of fruit does a good tree bear? Good fruit. What kind of fruit? Let's try this again. What kind of fruit does a good tree bear? Good fruit. That's right. Does it bear a bad tree? Bears what kind of fruit? Bad. And a good tree bears good fruit. So while you cannot guarantee that those who do good and act in righteous ways are truly righteous, it is doubtful that those whose lives persist in unrighteousness are truly righteous. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Boy, Darren, you're getting kind of dangerous. Aren't we just judging people if we say things like, well, you, right belief leads to right living. And so if there's no right living going on, you might question what you believe. Well, in case you think Darren's being me, we'll, we'll read Jesus and what he says. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, 33. Either, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. That's what he does. And the evil person, 
out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. That's a terrifying verse. It's a terrifying verse. And we know that what Jesus is saying there is you can't just say the magic words and get justified. But he's saying your words, your speech, your praxy, your living will be evident. It'll be evident. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. This is not a perfect work, granted, but it is a work in progress. It is a present and real work. None of us are fully orthodox right in our living we are plagued by the fallen man all of our days. We live with a sin nature that we wrestle against. None of us is perfect. The work is not done, but it is a work that is happening. It is a work that is to be happening. So it might be worthwhile at this point to ask yourself, how much of my life is on the ground guided and led by the desires of Christ? I know you're here on a Sunday morning. I know that we would give mint. If I passed out a test, if you've been here for the four years plus that I've been here, you probably could check all the boxes on what it means to believe in Jesus, what Christ has done for you. You can make the confession, but ask how much of my life on the ground is truly impacted by the desires of Christ. How much of my weakened decisions are guided by the desires of Christ. How much of my checkbook is guided by the desires of Christ? What he wants to do with the resources that he's given me. How much of my forgiveness is guided by the desires of Christ who commands me to forgive even as I've been forgiven? My peace with others, my hospitality, my honesty, my work ethic, how much of this is really impacted by Christ and his desire. There is a real disconnect between these realities in our world today. It is very common when you talk to people that there doesn't have to be a real connection. This is common. There doesn't have to be a real connection between what you believe and what you do. I believe in Jesus. And, it does, and all this stuff, all this evidence about my life, well, it doesn't affect what I believe about Jesus it's the outflowing of what you believe. It is the outflowing of what you believe. I talk to people sometimes whose life bears no influence from Jesus. People committing adultery, no interest in spiritual things, spending their time, drunkenness, pursuit of worldly pleasures. And you talk with them about how their walk with Jesus is going. You might, be concerned, you might even express concern. I'm concerned. I look at the pattern of your life and I, I think you're going down a road that does not end well. I'm concerned about you and your walk with Jesus. And they'll say things like, well, no, I'm all good with Jesus. Jesus, if I ever have a problem with Jesus, I'll let you know. I just got this other stuff. There's a total disconnect between, uh, they'll say things like, My, their faith is solid. It, it may be, but it is not a faith in the real Jesus. Most just live by the motto that God would want them to be happy. And so I'm going to march down whatever road I want to march down that's going to bring what I think is my own happiness and is totally divorced from Jesus and from who he is and what he has done. My argument for years now has been this, 
God is far more committed to your happiness than even you are. God is far more committed to your happiness than you are. Everyone thinks they're, they're leaving God's restricted happiness for their great happiness and sin and idolatry and worldly pleasures. God is far more committed to your happiness than even you are. He wants your long-term, eternal even, happiness a happiness that is found in him alone, a happiness through holiness brought by grace through Christ alone. There is no higher joy than the joy of the creator, the one who created joy. A person might argue, are we just saying, am I just saying that the Christian life has to show some kind of righteous excellence? And if you've got sin in your life, it's obviously you don't believe in Jesus. It's terrible. Are we just, am I arguing for some sort of Christian perfectionism? No, no. But it should, but something should be happening. Something should be happening. And, and let me say it this way. If, if the right, if the orthopraxy isn't in deeds, it better at least be producing repentance for the lack of those deeds. Orthodoxy leading to orthopraxy may not be producing in the moment of your life a great amount of righteous, righteous fruit. We could say and say, well, look at this person doing these great things. But if they're absent, it should be producing repentance. It should be producing at a minimum repentance. This is the heartbeat of Paul when Philippians chapter 3 says that, I, brothers, I do not consider myself that I have laid hold of this or been made perfect but forgetting what lies behind and pressing toward, forward to what lays ahead, I press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He presses on. He's not perfect, doesn't have it all figured out, but he's pursuing. He's pursuing. He's pursuing. I'm not perfect, but I am pressing on. This is the work that the gospel does through the Holy Spirit. We don't separate. That's, that's God's justifying grace doing its sanctifying work. That repentance when we fail, when expressed immediately, it meets with the truths of the gospel to then forgive the believer, correct them, and empower them to continue to strive for sanctification. So what are we to do? Not separating justification from sanctification. They are a mutual gift from God to us. What are we to do? First, we are to work hard to kill sin by finding superior joy in Jesus alone. This doctrine of Christian living is going to be grounded upon. You cannot jump into the doctrinal statement at point eight. Live like a Christian. It's all grounded upon the first seven statements of who God is, who we are, what Christ has done, the indicatives, the in, the, this, this is what has been done for you of the gospel. And by finding your superior joy in Jesus, it empowers you then for Christian living. Work hard to kill sin by finding superior joy in Jesus alone. The truth of your right standing with God. Is this easy? No. Do not expect this to be easy. That when you walk out of the doors this morning, it should just be this easy thing that there aren't tons of influences from this world trying to pull your affections away from Jesus to a thousand other things. They are strong poles. This is not easy. That's why there are repeated reminders from Paul. He says in verse 1 of Titus 3, remind them, remind them. This is not some easy run. This is, but this is why we must continually run back 
to the incredible good news of the gospel. Paul doesn't just say, go do right so that you can be right. He says, remember, rejoice in this truth. You are made right with God through Jesus Christ. He's done the work. He saved you. He's adopted you into his family. You've been given eternal treasure. In light of that joy, now live like it. Live like it. We must continuously run back to this good news. Titus 3, verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We must constantly run back to this gospel truth, this justifying grace that saved us is the truth, the foundation from which we then do go and our orthodoxy, our right believing in this truth leads to our right living. We must work hard to kill sin by finding superior joy in Jesus alone. Secondly, we must live this reality then out in front of the world in thousands of small ways. Thousands of small ways. This is not, this is not the big ta-da of, um, you know, you're just waiting for this great moment to so, show Jesus beautiful. You're waiting for this one big temptation to come along so that you can say no to it and show Jesus as magnificent. No, this is done in thousands of small ways. This is done within your family unit at home. This is done between husbands and wives. This is done between parents and children. This is done between friends. This is done to extended family. Thousands of little ways. This is done by your own personal habits of what you do with your free time. Thousands of small ways that you say, I'm, I want, I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to treasure Christ over the pleasures of this world. In thousands of small ways. The reality is, when you see these great falls of, of Christian leaders and you see them plunge into sin, that is not the first time that they've treasured sin over Jesus. It's a culmination of thousands, thousands of smaller treasurings of sin more than Jesus. So work hard to kill sin, live this out in front of the world in thousands of small ways, and then tell the world by living these things out in thousands of small ways of the greater joy that there is in Jesus, his justifying grace as our anchor, as our hope, then leading to sanctifying grace through Christ alone. It's what we celebrate when we take communion, remembering again the justifying grace of God that saves sinners, not by good works that they have done, but by his mercy and his grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that whatever of my words this morning that would be beneficial, challenging, convicting, in my own heart and in the hearts of all who, who have heard this morning, that, Father, you would do that work, that we would not be shy about confessing our shortcomings. We would not be shy about confessing our sin because we know that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and that sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Father, my prayer this morning is that as we prepare for communion, 
just in these few moments right now, in every heart, bring conviction that we might confess it, repent, look to Christ and his justifying work, be forgiven and then empowered that that justifying grace would lead to sanctifying grace that we might live lives that show the beauty of who you are and all that you have done and are doing through Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.